0: I was just about to say um, I was just about to say that Carol is going to begin teaching this morning uh in 5 minutes maybe 10 after we all collect ourselves and sit down and uh we'll will then stand up and do some uh mindful body movement together uh and I And I said to Carol, well, I'll just say something before you stand up and uh, I'll say that we're going to just sit a little bit first just to get ready to move. And uh, I remembered a story which I will tell you in less than two minutes because I thought there was a time uh, 20, 25, 20, 31 years ago. I can't figure that out. 31 years ago that I was sitting on a retreat in Hawaii next to my friend James Barras being taught by my friend Joseph Goldstein. And uh, we were on, we were in a retreat center that was two-story uh, buildings, uh, small kind of um, retreat center-type buildings, two stories high, on the beach, uh, on the island on the big island of Hawaii, um, and I sat down for the two o'clock in the afternoon, sitting and settled down along with everybody else on the second floor, which was our our uh, meeting area. and I'm sitting and sitting, and very soon the bell rings, and I thought to myself, "Wow." I must be so improving in my meditation that a whole hour sitting and it feels just like 10 minutes. So it was 10 minutes. (laughs) And the story, which I won't tell you the rest of now, goes on to the fact that the civil defense had called and said there's a tsunami. There's been an earthquake off uh, Japan. There's a tsunami crossing the Pacific. It's due where you are in about two and a half hours. So take measures get prepared, Uh, but when I said to Carol, I'll just announce what's going to happen, that we're going to sit for a very short time, I'm going to tell you that I wasn't thinking of telling you this story, then it came in my mind, now I'm telling you that in five or ten minutes when the bell rings, there is no alert about tsunamis, (laughs) nothing is happening, we're going to stand up and do a little body movement, so... (laughs)
1: Good morning. Can you hear me in the back? Yes? Good. Okay. So um, I'm just going to set up the context so you know what to expect. We're going to do a little bit of warm-up and then a little bit of shigan, and then we're going to end up sitting and talk a little bit about posture. Then I'll pass it on to one of my colleagues. This morning we have the opportunity to really go into the first noble truth which is really mindfulness of the body so as one of my teachers, Dr. Rina Sakar would say, it's a wonderful entry for practice the body, because the body lives right here and now it lives in the present you know, often the mind and emotions time travel but we can depend on the body letting us know exactly what is here right now so let's stand up. And I want to also mention, if, uh, you know, self-care, if any of you have any trouble with any of it or need to take a break or sit, you know, we can improvise if you want to use a chair um, in the back. And because we're going to set this up a little bit with Qigong, I want you to spread out a little bit so you have at least um, <clears throat> some length, you know, from, s- from someone. And um, bear with me because uh, I have on this mic, so doing Shigun with this mic might be a little challenging. <laughs> so the invitation really is to really drop into the body, be with the body. So we'll start off with some warm-ups that Sylvia led us through yesterday. Let's start with the neck, just slowly rotating. as we're moving through these movements, I invite you to, as what Jack often says, bring in the kind witness. And you may go the other direction. And then come back to stillness. I want to invite the mind to hold two qualities, one that is alert, and another cultivating stillness through movement. So then raise your shoulder, drop. Notice how it feels. And we each have our own rhythm. So meet yourself where you're at. And then stop. Notice sensations. And then we're gonna rotate forward. You can start off small circles without judging, just notice the sensations. And the opposite direction. You may have a little dukkha, what we call dukkha, dukkha hata, which is dukkha with pain or mental pain as we move. Just notice. And then just go a little bit larger, opening up, involving the rib cage. Involving the large muscle called the latissimi dorsi, that holds our shoulder blade, connects with the ribs. And if you want to bring your awareness to your breath, you may, but you don't have to. Meet yourself where you are. And again, bring the shoulder up and drop. And you can make sound, exhaling, The beauty of mindfulness is it is a practice of purifying purification it purifies the mind purifies the body so now just want you to bring your hands up and just do your wrist if you need to hold it sometimes we need to hold so it's more stable And then the opposite. Allow your awareness to rest in this movement. And then just bring your fingers out. This is a little bit of Qigong now. It's like you're throwing the energy out what Spider-Man would do as my three-year-old nephew would practice and then just hold the fingers like this clenching them and open, close, open, close and then out, out notice if your extremities are cold trying to get the chi moving in here and stop Now we'll do is Sylvia did with the elbows. And again, like mindfulness, just bring your awareness to the actual movement. You may have thoughts arise or feelings. (laughs) You're the opposite now. Just notice them. As you were taught yesterday, just noting motion, sensation. And then drop the arm, shake it. And then again, up and down. Move the arm, feel the aliveness of this arm and then stop. Notice and sensations. <coughs> and now I do the other arm, starting with the wrist. Again, every moment is an opportunity to practice <coughs> And then the opposite way. Again, fingers. Get that energy moving. Clench your hand. Again. and then moving the elbow. And the opposite way. And bring the arm down, shake it. And then up, down, up, down, move it. Now move both. Now in, in, in Tai Chi, and Chi we we from the waist up is heaven. So notice of heaven and earth, the waist down is connected or disconnected. You know, just notice without judging. So let's involve both by rotating our hips. Yeah. You can just start off small. Again, if your mind is wondering, don't judge. Just come back to the movement. Notice the thoughts arising. Notice sensation. And the opposite way. And maybe a little larger. Great. So I'm gonna incorporate a little bit now of Qigong. So what we wanna do is feel, first of all, you wanna feel the root of your feet, just like in yoga, the four corners of the feet just be rooted. And you don't want, you want your knees slightly bent. So you're kind of like a tree trunk. Your tailbone should be tucked in a little. In Tai Chi, that's very important that the knees are not locked in and that the pelvic tail is slightly in, tucked in so that you're kind of stable. So if someone were to come and push me, I could feel I won't easily be pushed out of this posture. So be a tree. <sighs> Sink in. Feel the nature of who we are. through the metaphor of the tree. We have a commonality, we're both living beings. So fill the root of your tree trunk here, in the pelvic sinking down. And then you can go back and forth, just noticing where your balance is. Notice the sensation in the pelvic area. Energy moving down from your, to your knees, down to the feet, feeling held by the earth. And then just come back to stillness. Notice any thoughts arising any sensations or discomfort. Again, we're just noticing, not judging, not fixing, just being with. And in Qiyun, we move this direction, just our back. Kind of, you can almost like sometimes you see, you know, some people doing this, hitting the back of their kidneys, waking them up. And again, notice the connection between your torso, your pelvic, your feet. Notice the alignment of your spine. There's no right way or wrong way. Just be gentle. Okay, stop. and stop. what you're gonna do is just raise your hand a little like this, then bring it down. As I do that, I'm gonna do I'm gonna come up a little and then down. Again, down, and then you can bring in breath. Breathe in and out, breathe in and out through your mouth, and then you're going to pause. And then with the next movement we're doing is we're just bringing, like we're moving clouds. (laughs) Yeah. And then one arm goes up. And as you turn, the other goes down. And you want to You want to be able to, let me see if I can demonstrate this. So if you just watch for a second. So there's no, it it goes together. The pelvic is always moving when you're moving. So by moving this way, it's like this. And then bring the foot. See how it's together? If I were to do this, I'm still grounded. Okay? Let's try that. And with this movement, it's an invitation to really... Create stillness with the mind. Notice the energy between your hands. And then you can come and stop. And we'll just raise again. Now bring your hands together and feel what we call the chi ball. You can bring them closer if you want to feel the energy between your hands. Bring your attention to your breath. And with this chi ball, what we're gonna do, just bring it towards your face, feel the energy, and then out towards heaven. Just reach out, then spread your arms, and then we're gonna pick up the chi from the earth and bring it upwards towards the heaven, out. and when you feel you can incorporate your breath as one practice that for some time you may notice sensations in your leg or fatigue it's okay just note it them sensations arising. just going to do again. Hands down and then up. How many of you feel warmer? Hmm. We're feeling the aliveness of who we are each moment. Recognizing that we are living beings and every moment is an opportunity to feel alive. And then let's just go back. So let's work our way. And then just come up. Feel the chest, the lungs, and then the arms. And that pat yourself in the back. You're doing good. This retreat. Kidneys. And then side of the legs, back of the legs. And if you want, you can also use your hand like this. It'll put it in the fist and just go down. Notice your breath right now is it shallow is it long breathing is it rapid without judgment just notice notice the state of your mind at this moment thoughts arising Are you extend your feet so your shoulder width just feel and just drop your hands and bring your weight to one side and we're going to, if you can, you can also hold a chair. This rotate the foot and then the other side and then bring it down, do the same. Just notice your balance. And then the other side. And then down. And wiggle your toes. You can't leave those out. I want to feel every part of us. And as you're wiggling, you may notice your inner thighs are also moving. What part of you is moving? Notice if your heaven and earth is now feeling connected. Connected. and just stand for a second with your knees not locked kind of allowing the earth to just hold you and take a few deep breaths Notice how you feel standing. This is also a powerful posture for meditating. I often teach um, my students when they're at work, the only privacy they have is to go to a bathroom stall and do standing meditation to ground themselves. Before an important meeting or a conversation, they have just those couple of moments of alone time in the loo. And before we sit down, bring your awareness to the transition of us from moving and standing to sitting, and be with each movement. So come back to your chair or your cushion. So there are formal ways of sitting that are more comfortable. Our cushions have have a long lifeline, if you notice they're quite flat, <laughs> so you may need extra. You may have to find you know some extra cushions, which there are around. actually, we should put those up front, um, to help your your knees. What you want to do is sit on your sit bone. So you want your spine. Imagine so there's a string above your crown and it's pulling you up. So you want your spine to be straight. Usually you don't want to be in back of the cushion. You want to be kind of in the middle or a little bit in the front. So you're on your sit bone. And If you don't know where that is, just lift up a leg and you feel that bone and lift up another leg. You feel that bone. And your knees should be downward. I love sitting the way I was taught by my Burmese teacher, Burmese style, <laughs> so, which is my legs, my left comes like this, and my right is just right in front of it. My knees are down. And if you notice, if your knees are not down, then you may need some cushion, some extra cushion here on the knees, so it can help you stay in this posture, because you always want to be upright it is just such an invitation to be awake alert and if you're sitting on a chair you know you want your feet you know planted on the ground not crossing just with your foot both feet on the ground and your hands on your thighs and again you want to notice you know sometimes the chair you may need also cushion in the back to help you find that posture And you can also, you know, get comfortable with the seat bone. Or you can have a cushion, like I see many of you have on the chair, to help you. And that's good, too. And you may need some pillows at the bottom of your feet if you're not tall enough for the foot to go down. And, you know, this is quite all right. This is good etiquette to get pillows or to get what you need. I mean, for many of us, we're in a short retreat, so... What's beautiful about coming into Spirit Rock is, you know, everything is provided for, you know. So we're here to just drop in and we have very busy lives, so the opportunity to drop in. So it's okay to, I give you permission to take some pillows and, you know, if you're not using your pillows, do put them back because we have a very limited amount and we want to make sure everyone has their posture, meets them where they're at. So, you know... Shoulders should be back. So when you think of it, it's you know, it's not the army military kind of Shoulders up and back you when we did the rounding forward. Just bring them back and down Your elbows can help support that by being just right, you know, it's kind of a nice little weight That anchors it down, right? So your shoulders are back. So you're not hunched over you're open the heart's open, the ribs are open. It's easy to allow breath to come in and go out. So this may take time to find the comfort of your own posture, but really the fundamental um, principle for a good posture is to have your back as much as possible upright so that string works for me and um, the tailbone sitting on the cushion works as well, it allows you to feel well. what does that feel like and sometimes we've been so used to sitting a certain way, it may take time to develop that so before I pass this on, I'd like to end with a quote from another teacher, my beloved late teacher Angelus Arian's book on the Nine Muses. This is the season of letting go of the burden of the heart. Let every weight you carry fall away like colored leaves. Let your heart be restored to fullness. Let your heart be restored to openness. Let your heart be restored to clarity. Let your heart be strong again. This is the season of letting go of the burden of your heart. May they be compost for new growth and the renewal of your indomitable spirit where the land shimmers. So you can close your eyes and come into your breath.
2: Excuse me. Thank you, Carol. Thank you. So we'll just uh, sit quietly for some minutes. I think uh, the usual tendency is to think about um, enlightenment as that which um, kind of uh, solves all our problems, you know, it's like, here I am, I'm this hot mess, and I got to find some solution to my problem, enlightenment's going to actually resolve the problems, you know. But what I would um, suggest is, is something more like uh, the reverse, that uh, uh, enlightenment uh, uh, arises when we have no problems. When there are no problems in the moment. So what, what does that mean for there to be no problems in this moment? Well, it doesn't mean that um, the first noble truth is banished, or it doesn't mean that uh, there's any less urgency in our kind of um, commitment to, to healing the world, addressing the, the suffering of the world but it means that in this moment, there is a zero friction with experience. That's what we could say, for there to be no problems, there's zero friction with experience. And this is really that the kind of fruit of of letting go. And sometimes it's very obvious what we're holding on to. And sometimes we actually feel like we've let go, but we're secretly h- hanging on to something else, you know? And, what what I, I want to suggest is that, that l- letting go becomes uh, more and more of a path um, to uh, sila samadhi panya, what we've been talking about all along. That letting go is a path to uh, kind of wholesome ethical engagement. That it is a path to Uh, the, the, to wisdom, to Panya, and it is a path to uh, the settling of the mind, right? That when we're actually not uh, creating friction with the moment, it, um, there's, there's nothing left for the mind to get stuck to for the attention to stick to and so it starts to feel more and more natural just to to settle into the kind of natural empty piece of the moment and this is um, this is relevant as we make the pivot from what's Ultimately, I think uh, an artificial distinction between mindfulness and love. And so today we uh, we turn to like the 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 fruit of letting go, a love that is feels so natural and uncontrived, like water running down a hill. And this is not something we actually have to manufacture in the house of self. It, it's the kind of love that it, it feels like it's been waiting for us all along. And it feels like the most authentic expression there is. It's the face of insight. It's the face of letting go. So, uh, I think uh, there's a, a consequence of insight practice, is something like love. But it can also be very useful to uh, deliberately turn the attention to these particular mind states. And Somebody wrote a question. We're not getting to many of the bowl questions, by the way, I'm sorry. We're, they're actually informing how we're thinking about things. But somebody just wrote on, it was just like a plain sheet of paper and just said, what is love? That's a beautiful question. Sometimes people have this idea that that loving-kindness, metta, is like, um, it's supposed to be like volcanic kind of flow of rapturous love and And sometimes that's actually true. Sometimes it's like body and mind so thoroughly pervaded, so singularly radiating love. And that's just like all there is. And when there's, that's all there is, um, the kind of boundary between where one self, we think that ends and the world begins, that becomes very porous. But that's not the only expression of metta. Uh, There's also the expression of metta. Somebody said, um, describe the metta of a particular monastic. And um, they said, they felt his metta as if it was a light from distant stars. And the practice itself, the practice of metta, which we'll talk about, and, and, and Sylvia has been a, a kind of instrumental voice in kind of expressing the, the power and beauty of it uh, over the years, the, the practice of it is, um, I think of it as having at least kind of three ways that it can be, that it can manifest, that metta practice can manifest. And so the first is, is as a, a kind of purely a concentration practice. We might use simple, very simple phrases or, or words. Like sometimes when I get quiet, it, it may not be a whole phrase, it may just be, you know, safe, happy, peace. Or over the years, the, just the word, the Pali word, meta, metta, M-E-T-T-A, has taken on so much uh, kind of dense web of associations that sometimes it's enough just to say that word, metta. And sometimes that may be associated with emotional uh, feeling. Sometimes there's nothing there and we can actually, it's, it's fine to just use metta as a kind of way of stabilizing the attention. And so we pour all of the awareness into those phrases, into those words. And it's like we're, um, we're ringing a bell in the mind and then listening to the reverberations in the body. And we're not intent on hearing a particular sound. We just ring the bell and listen. So the, this is a, the side of metta that might be a concentration practice. And then there's the, the side of metta that's the, the, we could say the purification practice. That uh, metta, sometimes it's been likened to like a, a kind of magnet that pulls the, everything undigested in the heart to the surface, you know. So here I am, trying to be loving, and each phrase seems to be a magnet for resentment. And agitation, right? And uh, that's actually part of the logic of the practice that that um, we are uh, completing what's what's incomplete in the heart, and naturally, like what the kinds of. Um, whatever is unresolved, whatever has a kind of trace from the past, whatever has electrified associations may come up in the course of metta practice. And uh, that's not actually a sign that we're doing it wrong at all. It's actually just a facet of the practice itself. This is uh, Jesse Vega Frey, Frey um, who is a very beautiful teacher, teaches in Insight, insight Meditation Society in, in Hawaii. And he's talking about this, this aspect of, uh, of purification. And so he, he said, um, in the world of spiritual things, we hear a lot about the present moment even here, and he was teaching at at IMS, even here will encourage you when your mind is wandering to come back to the present moment, come back to the body as a doorway to understanding and insight and liberation. And also as a relief from the wildness of where the mind can take us. We hear a lot about the present moment having a kind of magic quality, this sort of holy sacredness that the present moment itself will heal us. That it's sort of this mystical place of receptive goodness and it's kind of deified. If you look at some of the quotes, abide in the present moment, you could just take out the present moment and put in God, abide in God. And that may be a good thing to do, but it's not Vipassana. And it's important to recognize the difference of this more devotional relationship to the present and what we're doing here, which is this investigative, careful, mindful approach to experience in the sense doors that's arising and passing in the present moment. Then he goes on to say, the present moment, the best motto I recently have is come for the peace, stay for the war. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> come for the peace, stay for the war. You know, we fought some wars yesterday, no doubt. Yeah. Um And... This is like actually part of the logic of the practice. We have to be willing to find our way through the thicket of confusion and undigested pain. The, the, this is, a, this, as is called, like the path of purification. We are blessing everything unfinished in the heart with wisdom and love. And so in metta practice, when what is unresolved arises, we may, and and Sylvia, I'm sure we'll talk quite a bit about this, maybe we stay with metta practice, bringing a kind of attitude of kindness and love to what's unfinished. Or we may move into a more kind of Vipassana mode where there is a kind of that careful, investigative looking. And then it may feel appropriate to switch back in some way. And sometimes the practices may blend together in some way, may innovate in some way that, um, where the distinction between vipassana and metta feels more blurry. And then uh, the last thing I'll say uh, before we uh, pause, is uh, this, so that we've got concentration, purification, and then the the third aspect of metta, which was, sometimes we think this is the whole of metta practice, which we could call maybe cultivation, bhavana. And uh, cultivation, we say we are strengthening or accessing these the, this, like, beautiful quality of the heart that is, is, um, is non-possessive love. It is love that's not uh, conditioned on uh, having and holding. It's the love, actually, of letting go. So I saw a, a description of, uh, of this um, from uh, a writer, uh, Sam, Sam Harris. And this was the description of the first experience that led him into a, a whole kind of spiritual path. And uh, um, now important to note that this was pharmacologically induced love. Meaning, they did drugs, yeah. Um, but it, what it actually captures is like, a, I feel like a very gorgeous evocation of, of love. And it's something that we do not need uh, any uh, drug to, uh, to actually know deeply for ourselves. So he's describing, he's 19 years old, and describing a time with his, uh, his best friend, another best friend, and uh, uh, he said, In the midst of this ordinariness, I was suddenly struck by the knowledge that I loved my friend. This shouldn't have surprised me. He was, after all, one of my best friends. However, at that age, I was not in the habit of dwelling on how much I loved the men in my life. Now I could feel that I loved him. And this feeling had ethical implications that suddenly seemed as profound as they now sound pedestrian on the page. I wanted him to be happy. That conviction came crashing down with such force that something seemed to give way inside me. Truly wanting him to be happy made his happiness my own. And then came the insight that irrevocably transformed my sense of how good human life could be. I was feeling boundless love for one of my best friends And I suddenly realized that if a stranger had walked into the room at that moment, he or she would have been fully included in this love. Love was at bottom, impersonal, and deeper than any personal history could justify. The insight had the character of a geometric proof. It was as if, having glimpsed the properties of one set of parallel lines, I suddenly understood what must be common to them all. So you don't have to change posture, but before we walk, just uh, allow the eyes to close. We'll just sit for a minute or two. No pressure to manufacture anything. Just making space for love.
0: It's really lovely to teach with you. I'm, I'm first of all I'm touched, and I, as I'm sure everyone else is, and I also have an appreciation very much of uh, what we four of us have talked about in teacher meetings about the whole of practice is contemplative practice, of course. the the kinds of silent internal practice that we do, and the um, presentation of the moral context, but also in the context of a quietened mind supported by uh, an atmosphere and a context of safety that you can hear things that you've heard before or maybe haven't, and they go directly in. They sound different than when you read it in a textbook. Whoa. I'm very happy to hear that piece from Sam Harris. I I, uh, I met Sam Harris in 1991. I was, I, this was my connection as you would teach, had mentioned him and um, I met him at a uh, in India uh, when we went, had both come to Lucknow to uh, visit um, a man named Punja Sri Punja, who uh, we called affectionately and honorifically Punjaji. It was the beginning of the nineties, and uh, many people uh, uh, and many Buddhist practitioners were going to Lucknow to. Be with Punjaji and study with him. And uh, Sam was there, and Ramdas was there, and, lots, and James Barras was there, and I was there. And the way that you studied, Punjaji was not a Buddhist, he was a follower of Advaita tradition, which is a tradition really of understanding that everyone is interdependently. Uh, part of this whole evolving manifest world. And the principal way that he taught was he met with people in his essentially his home so that every day in the morning, 30 or 40 people would push into what would be an our home, our living room or something. It was just a the biggest room in his house, which was a regular house on a regular street, and he sat on the, in the front on a slightly raised platform so we could see him. And he talked to people, and they would present their spiritual questions, and he would answer them. And uh, it was in a uh, it wasn't a didactic kind of a thing. He didn't have a chalkboard or a he just talked about being aware of not being separate from all that is. And there were ways in which he said it, that just when you listened, you were moved to, um, at least I was moved to very uh, spacious places in my mind where someone had asked me who you annoyed at or what are the worries in your life. I couldn't have really remembered very well at that point because the general uh, ambient understanding was that presence and awareness of interbeing was really holding us all up. And he had an amazing quality of having uh, just regular conversations with people in which you'd really understand something in a new way. And I remember particularly one day where my friend James said, um, I've brought a tape that I want to play for you. He, also a cassette tape, This a long time ago. And it was a tape of a young boy who had been somehow, uh, at a very young age, seemed to be spiritually quite wise. And this, this boy was talking on the tape in a very uh, wonderful way. Uh, remember I said the other, I think I said it here, about the Dalai Lama saying, I am the cause of most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind. Did I say that here? I hope so. Okay. Uh, This boy was saying some really extraordinary, wonderful things. I don't even remember who, because it didn't last. It was a thing that was going around at that time. He was a real boy and real insight. And uh, Punja couldn't understand it because the English was somehow in a tone or a dialect that he couldn't get it so that James would replay it and he played the tape and he'd play a little bit and then he would articulate in clear English to Punja. So everybody was paying very special attention, James and Punja and all of us sitting there. Everybody really attentive and he did it word by word and phrase by phrase. And then he came to the end of the boy's recitation which was very moving. And it ended the tape, and Punja burst into tears and really crying. And all of a sudden, you don't know what to do. First of all, the guru is crying. Second of all, (laughs) James is obviously a little concerned that he has brought the guru to tears inadvertently. And and he cries, cries, cries for maybe, I don't know, half a minute, a minute. And he takes a breath He looked around at the whole group, and he said, "Tom, did you manage to get your tickets to Darmsala? Worked out yesterday?" It just it came up in him a flood of present awareness and full response. And then it was gone. Tom, did you get the tickets to Darmsala?" <laughs> And it was so moving in terms of being completely available in this moment, and then not, not clinging, not just where you started today, about letting it go. the ability to, to really respond I think I'm glad you reminded me of it with Sam because really <laughs> that was where I met him, and that what caused me to remember that whole story. But it makes a wonderful point about that really love, I think, and we were so moved by both of those interactions, was the ability to be totally there with somebody. Totally there. Totally there with James. and cry. And then, okay, finished. Tom, did you get your tickets to Dom Sala yesterday? And both of them were of equal you know, concern. Did you work it out with the ticket office? So it was an example of that we think of love as, uh, we've used it more with um, kind of a Valentine kind of a thing or special love. But the the love that's really a manifestation of total presence, which is the same in a certain way. Uh, Total presence is the inverse of total self-preoccupation. It's really not preoccupied with self. The self disappears in that moment. And you're being moved at the tape is fully meaningful to me. And you're getting the tickets to Dharamsala is also meaningful to me. To be there fully in life, it really, it's, I'm glad I reminded because it's really the whole uh, of all-purpose story So this is not to rise you above life, but in the middle of life, to meet it all the time. And that where the love manifests is in the, the connecting between what seem to be different lives—that uh, that's not a new thing to say—that, but, but connecting is really what matters. Other people have said that too, in different, in whole different categories, in whole different traditions. Martin Buber talked about the wholehearted connection between people of caring. As, as being what we think about as loving fully. Because the you disappears and it's just we. And you look around at we and you realize that is not only it could be me, but in a certain sense it is. And then I just had the the image, in a minute, we're going to move into an exercise particularly on that, of... When we start to talk about metta practice and loving all beings, we'll we'll work on the sutta together later and we'll talk about it. But it talks about, there's a a line that says, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. I think that's really probably the most radical line of all, all beings, omitting none. So that's pretty clear about omitting none. And people really think about, well, wait a minute, but but it, does, it means, it doesn't matter the being, it, 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 and there are some people who are really doing terrible things in the world by any kind of a rational thought, but to be able to see all beings as in their own way, maladaptive and uh, un, unwholesome as it is, doing the only thing that they can do. And some beings needing to be taken care of and other people needing to be something else. But, But all beings trapped in creation. If we didn't know stories about people, it would be easy to wish well for all beings and say, everybody just like me wants to lie down in peace and wake up in peace and feel safe. But then you think of so-and-so or so-and-so. You know, I think that one of the reasons that people, maybe, uh, maybe one of the reasons that people like those animal videos so much of baby dogs and baby puppies, and because you know, they don't have stories about them and they just look cute and you think about it. You know, creation is marvelous. Everybody has their own favorite one. I like the one with the baby elephant under the, its mother. And, but people to say, I watch those because they make me feel happy. You think, and I think they make us feel happy because we see that what motivates all things in creation is to be safe and give safety, you know? And we feel good when we see it. I wonder if, if we could manage to see all beings in the world, all human beings, as babies, could we possibly, as a country, do a war on anybody if instead of thinking that's full of X kind of people or Y kind of people, if we thought that country is full of babies? It's just a country of babies sitting there. Could we do any, I mean, what would you do? You'd run over and take care of them. And they all of them are babies that are at a certain age now. And babies who now have names and histories and stories, and we have stories about them. But they started out babies, just like us. The practice of loving kindness, as as we've been saying, as I have been saying for, for a long time and will continue to say, is a variation of a the theme of mindfulness. It's mindfulness of the presence or absence of goodwill in our hearts and minds. We'll talk about that more during the day. But it has a particular way of practice and for people who are uh, habituated to being here and as uh, we've really said back and forth that mindfulness is being aware of what's arising and our response to it and what's the wholesome thing now to do. And the technique of loving kindness as it's being taught these days as a formal concentration practice is a technique of blessing, thinking of people in particular and sending them blessings. And throughout the rest of this morning and part of this afternoon, we'll think of whole different categories of people And see what happens when we wish them well. The easiest, I think, in a certain way for every one category, is people you don't know, because you have no story about them. When I walk from the front of the plane to the back of the plane to go to the restroom, I see people in all those terrible positions, (laughs) so uncomfortable, and I think to and I feel really my heart goes out to them and people with a child sleeping on them, and everybody's asleep, and and somebody's trying to mollify a crying baby. And you don't think I wish some of these people a better flight than other people, you know? It's all the same flight. May we all get there, may we all get there well, may they all calm down, may it not be terrible. And it's a pleasure to think that about them because while I'm thinking that about them, may, may you be peaceful, may you be happy, While I'm thinking that about them, I'm not thinking the alternative soundtrack inside, what am I doing in this plane? You said a year ago you weren't going to fly anyplace anymore. Here you are. You're way too old to be. It was really a stupid decision. All those things that are some of my tape library that I could play. But instead of that type library, if I play, look at this woman. She's got a three-year-old sleeping next to her and a six-month-old sleeping here. It's amazing. Good for her. May she get there well. You look around, people you don't know. If someone told me the people on the left side of the aisle all voted the way that you did, and the people on the right side, they all voted the other way, I would not wish that the plane would tip one way and not the other way. You know, that everybody should get there well. It's not a problem. On the way there, if I see someone who's a particular nemesis, and I think to myself, ah, look who's on this plane, whoa. But still, I want the whole plane to get there well, because I'm on it too. (laughs) So really, this is not about arm-wrestling the mind into a stupid haze where it just goes around saying, may all beings be peaceful and happy and peaceful and happy, and it doesn't know what it's saying. It's may all beings be peaceful and happy, and it knows what it's saying. We are all in the same boat of having bodies and minds and kin and people we care about and ideas we care about, and we are all vulnerable and subject to loss, and it is that awareness of everybody's in this boat and, and the boat, and, and, and only for a limited time, and everybody suffers, even though oh that person everybody is suffering. certain people's circumstances are more painful than others, but everybody's mind suffers. And it's really out of that awareness that that genuine kind of love. I was thinking that Sam, notwithstanding the pharmaceuticals in that in that particular story, the pharmaceuticals erase the stories. You know, when you do the pharmaceuticals, among other things, I mean, everything gets more interesting. But uh, but the, you don't remember who you don't like. You know, I often say to people, "What if?" What if this glass of water had an herb described in it, dissolved in it, which is a uh, a colorless herb, but if you take a sip of this, you will forget every grudge you ever had. How many people are coming up to get a sip? (laughs) Not everybody. You don't want to embrace every grudge you ever had. No, really? You having fun with that grudge? I don't want, to, don't want to forget. I don't want to have amnesia. I, want, I, I, I mean, I want to remember who I shouldn't hang out with because they do not good things. But I don't want to uh, have it in for them because the uh, part that has it in for them is painful for me. Anyway, for the next uh, 25 minutes or so, 30 minutes, so that you have time to both walk and take care of all the other needs that you might have. Let's do the walking around the room or the hall or the walking room meditation. In both of the, all three of those places, there'll be enough people around, not just you. Take a walk where you feel your body and you feel your body moving in space you can do that for the first little bit as you're walking. I always think I'm an antenna and I'm walking along like, like the deer out here or the turkeys. They don't, they don't fall over cliffs. They know where they are. Walking around, feeling the ground, feeling my body, feeling the cool on my hands. And then as you're walking around, maybe saying to yourself, peaceful and happy. Peaceful and happy. And say it to yourself if you are, and say it to yourself if you're not. Somebody said to Thich Han, who said to the, a whole group of people, he said, as you're sitting there meditating, smile. And somebody said, what if I'm not happy? He said, I didn't say be happy, I just said smile. <laughs> you, know, you don't have to be happy. You know, the that, that smile is just your face relaxes. Maybe you'll accidentally feel happy if your face relaxes, but it's brilliant. Saying to yourself, peaceful and happy, peaceful and happy, doesn't mean, ta-da, peaceful and happy, but it means peaceful and happy is a mind state. And I could have it right now and worry my worries later if I want to. But if I don't need to do it right now, peaceful and happy, peaceful and happy. In the course of this 30 minutes, I'm making it longer and longer because I'm saying so many things to do. In the course of this 30 minutes, Allow yourself to look around the room, not to establish a deep and meaningful (laughs) eye contact with somebody, but to see somebody that you haven't seen before or that you don't know. You don't know anything about, you don't even know what you see. And you're saying about yourself, peaceful and happy, peaceful and happy. Think for them, I hope you're peaceful and happy. I hope you're peaceful and happy. May you be peaceful and happy. Whatever you feel like saying, that's a sweet thing to say that you would say for yourself so you can say for you peaceful and happy and for them. I I like to say tranquil and relaxed, tranquil and alert. Actually, that was my big one last year, tranquil and alert. I did that for a lot of months. Tranquil and alert. If I was and if I wasn't because then it reinstalls it and causes it to reemerge. Is that all? make sense to you yourself and other people that you don't know if you see somebody that you came with or you know or that you love very much it doesn't mean you can't wish them well also but particularly look for people that you don't know anything about and in that half hour take time to take care of everything that you need and we'll be back here at 10 past Wait, right? wait. Right. 10 past 11 And then we'll practice sitting down. I'm happy to see that the sun has come up, you probably noticed. And it reminded me that um, I've been mentioning all along that I've had these particular practice mantras that I said to myself at different times to keep my morale up and my courage up and my determination up. One of my favorite things to say to myself in all the years of practice when I was, actually what was coming up was difficult to think about or difficult to let into my consciousness or I was just unhappy about something or other or getting impatient about leaving. I would think to myself about that current state of mind, I'd say to myself, any second this is gonna change and I was. When I see the, the, uh, the weather, I think about it that way. Anything, every second, things change. What did Joseph say? as those first things? What did he say about change? Always. What was that first thing you said? He said.
2: Oh, anything can happen anytime. Anything that can
0: happen anytime. I wrote a, the I wrote a book about Buddhist practice. The first book I wrote, I wanted to call. Albuquerque mind, because I was teaching, I guess a lot in Albuquerque in those days. In Albuquerque, the weather changes every 10 minutes. You sit down in a room like this, it's beautiful like this. You open your eyes, 30 minutes later, it's snowing. (laughs) Then you look at the snowing, then you close your eyes again, you open your eyes and it's blowing. Then you open your eyes and it's something else. And I wrote about that somewhere in the book about the mind states are completely uh, uh, ephemeral they're like made out of air one minute this one minute that first it's this and it's that so I called it Albuquerque mind and the publisher said the whole book is fine but we have to change the title nobody will get it it's too complicated so then uh, I said okay I want to call it I changed my mind (laughs) because that's a very like in thing to say tricycle used to have a Change Your Mind Day, every day, Tricycle Magazine, every year in Central Park. Let's call it I Changed My Mind. I said, nobody's going to like that either because they're not going to get it. What's the name of your book? I Changed My Mind. So what did you change it to? No, I Changed My Mind. Anyway, so they they made up the title It's Easier Than You Think, which is not exactly true. It's... uh, But it was very, very attractive to people because they like the idea of easy, easy. I said we could put a subtitle called It's Harder Than You Could Imagine. You know, change your mind state, you know, change, your, change your attitude. Mind states are pretty easy to change. Someone calls you up and say, hey, good news, I just got a great job, I fell in love, my health screening came out perfect, you feel great. And then someone calls you and says, hello, ma and then you feel ungrate. so. Somebody amongst all these questions that, you'll, that you've been sending and I'm saving, and we plan to really address all of them before we finish finished somewhere or another. Somebody said, I understand about non-grasping and non-attachment, but what about with my child? So I just want to start out this talking about loving-kindness. That there's a line that everybody relates to, as just as a mother would give her life to support her child, her only child, just so should we towards all beings, boundlessly open our hearts. That um, that image, as based on the awareness that built into human beings, is the impulse to nurture, and to nurture their own. That. Um, Sam's awareness, when he realized how much he loved his friend so infinitely, spaciously, was that all beings had that awareness. And I think to myself, we have it towards our kin, and we easily lose it with past the kin and other people, but having it towards all beings out of the awareness that they love their children as much as I did do It's not the same ever as one's own kin, I think, just because neurologically we're connected to our family. But we have the prototype for that kind of selfless love. So I wanted to say something about, continuing what Matthew said this morning about Sylvia says there that metta practice and mindfulness practice are really not two dissimilar practices. I'm sure we've said it a lot of times. I, I, and I, I really do believe that they are certainly different techniques. And I had been doing mindfulness practice in the uh, traditional way that many of you who have practiced before were, have been doing for 10 years before I learned this particular practice of bringing to mind systematically uh, everyone in my life that was in my life proximal to me because they're kin and 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 community and distal to my life just because <coughs> they're doing this trip on this planet with me, and I I I, I soon realized that. There's another way of seeing this as opposed to this is practice A and this is practice B. Practice A for uh, the instructions for mindfulness, we're gonna do this in five minutes because it's important to put it in. And I I think it sets the the whole framework for it. You remember last night I said the Buddha was coming along and uh, everybody said there's that old good-for-nothing monk Siddhartha who gave up the real practice and and here he is but then they said look he looks better what's what's he know and he expounded what he knew including the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and in the beginning if you read some of the early Buddha stories they're so, they're so uh, inspiring because it's in the Buddha went here he taught something like Jesus he taught by... Uh, anecdote and allegory and uh, went from place to place and just told, made, uh, did sermons. And often it said, uh, the Buddha went here and he said this and this and this and this and 900 people were listening to him. And when he finished, would then say the same line, uh, behind the eyes of A hundred people, which I suppose means in the mind, behind the eyes of a hundred people arose a spotless, immaculate vision of Dharma and their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from taints. Don't you love that line, that heart liberated from taints? And spontaneously, all they did was listen to a Dharma talk and their hearts spontaneously were liberated from taints, which means never again. Did their mind get caught in greed and hatred and delusion? I'm still waiting. Sat sat through so many Dharma talks. When Matthew was talking about Sam this morning, I felt quite uplifted. And I could really feel that kind of spacious mind for a moment. But, you know, I'm likely to get annoyed this afternoon or something else about something else. It didn't happen to me that never again did the, the taints arise in my mind. But it was very inspiring. And then part of the stories, as it went on, and the Buddha went here and taught and he went there and taught. And in so many people, there arose the spotless Immaculate vision. These also they all got it. And then there's a, there's, then there's a teaching called "The Four Foundations of Mindfulness," where the Buddha is talking, begins by saying, "This is practice, friends, monks." that uh, is the, this is the sole way, O monks, for the ending of perturbation of mind. He's got a few more words for perturbation. But he means for suffering in the mind. This is the soul way. And then he put points out, you pay attention in the breath and the breath in the body. You pay attention in three more dimensions. And I always had the feeling that... Uh, this I'm making this up, there is no scriptural documentation for this particular um, take I am having on this, but I think that the beginning teachings, he just said what he knew and people became freed. And then I have this vision that he thought to himself, hmm, not everyone is getting it. You know, here I am, I'm putting it out, but people don't get it somehow. Maybe I have to break it down like when you have children going to the first grade and they're learning to read, some of them can't get it right away just by looking and getting it. So they have to come a half hour earlier to what's euphemistically usually called the bluebirds or the early group. so you won't feel bad. But they know that it's not bluebirds, it's actually people who are having trouble reading. So, that, but so they have to break it down and make it into manageable pieces. So you say, here's the breakdown. It's, it's mindfulness clear seeing into the roots of suffering that is going to set you free. He's okay, you didn't get it. Now let's break it down. Let's just do mindfulness of the breath and the body because by paying close attention to the breath and the body, you will see the truth of everything is ephemeral. This body used to be a baby and now it's an old woman and soon it won't be here anymore and New babies and new women and new people are coming up. You'll get the understanding that life is um, uh, imper everything is impermanent and vulnerable undependable in terms of being a source of pleasure because we're pleased and then we're not and pleased and not. All you have to do is pay attention to the body. Comfortable, not comfortable, comfortable, not comfortable. Pay attention to the body, he said. Also pay attention, that's one dimension of mindfulness. Second dimension of mindfulness is pay attention to the, um, uh, the arising of a feeling. Uh, not, we talk about feelings, why like feelings are hurt. He meant a particular thing by feeling. He said pay attention to the fact that every single moment of consciousness that arises Oh, there's that. There's that. Um, There's the Rolling Stones playing da-da-da. Oh, I love that. Oh, I I, 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 I want to listen more of that. Turn up the radio, please. Or there's the Rolling Stones. Ah, so loud. Turn it down. Whatever. We have a particular relationship to what's happening on whether or not it's pleasant or unpleasant to us. But that's really the secondary thing, the first thing is something's happening and it's either pleasant or unpleasant. In this very interesting book by Robert Wright about Buddhism is True, he really emphasizes that instantaneous, really, decision that the mind right makes about, oh good, oh fooey, oh good, oh fooey. I don't like this, get rid of this, this I like, get me more of it, and he's saying that our comfort and our really ability to be civilized beings and walk around with other people is our ability to make a little space between I love it and I have to get rid of it so we can think over what's a good thing to do now is that why it's this I really like but wait a minute it's not mine if I take it it'll be troublesome for me I'll make the other person unhappy I'll be unhappy my family will be unhappy I can like it but not take it and we can reflect in between, we can be responsive rather than reactive. Lizards are reactive. Uh, bears don't consider whether it'd be a good idea to do X or Y, they're very skilled at what they do, but they don't have the dimension of, uh, of uh-oh, how would it be to inhibit this? We have the possibility of this big frontal lobe where we can inhibit ourselves, say I like this, but now is not a good time to have it. And I don't like that, that's not a good time to have it. And so we get an awareness by this, just looking at this second dimension of, uh, of mindfulness, how that's really happening all the time. And we're negotiating between fooey and oh good, all the time. And that, that's a source of tremendous um, exhaustion to the mind the line from uh, Yoshua Kempo where he says, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought. I think that it's so poetic, You know, I think about that. My, my mind beaten helpless by all the neurotic worries I've had about what if this, what if that, what if this, what if that. In those periods of time when my mind has been at ease, without, Matthew was really alluding to this and mentioning it this morning, without the compulsion that it needed something, my mind not needing any single thing to be different, just the way it is, is the most pleasant feeling that I know. There's lots of pleasant feelings in life, in the body and in the mind, but the mind that's at ease with what's happening says, okay, this is it. Here I am. The mind that really can do that can do it all the life. And can do it all the life till the end, can say thank you very much, I have no complaints. <laughs> the third dimension of mindfulness, the body and the breath, there's noticing what happens with liking and not liking, is called the dimension of mindfulness of the mind being aware just as breath comes and goes hunger comes and goes, sleepiness comes and goes well fatigue comes and goes, that in the mind moods come and go. When I remember I just said a few minutes ago I wanted to call and I changed my mind I don't change my mind, my mind changes itself uh, is changed by what happens or what happens, including not only that the weather changes or the energy level changes but and the news changes, but my intention changes and that changes the mind. If I'm, uh, if I'm uh, uh, walking along and I'm <coughs> feeling at ease or driving my car and just at ease and all of a sudden I think, you know, yesterday in that uh, staff meeting at Spirit Rock, so-and-so, they said that to me. I, I thought that was a little critical. I didn't think that that was a good thing to do in front of well, you know, Tomorrow, when the next time I see that person, I won't just be so friendly to them. And they'll wonder about what happened to Sylvia Washington. And then they'll ask, did I offend you, by the way? And then I'll say, well, I'm not, uh. Meantime, if I catch myself having this prolonged... Anybody had a recriminative of thought that I'll say, they'll say, I'll say, they'll say. Ultimately, they'll feel sorry about what they said or didn't recognize about me. You find yourself doing that. If I'm walking along, I'm gripping my arms. If I'm driving, I'm holding the steering wheel. That is an unpleasant, unwholesome mind state. Uh, revenge. That was nasty. Mm. Without the revenge, even a kind of... Uh, Averse of mind state, which is I'm better than they. I would never have done this, but they did it. But that's also painful in the mind. Or they are super. What a great person! Look what they just did. I'll never be able to do that. Oh, I didn't. You know, I wish I could do that. Therefore, you know, the story about how lacking I am. All those stories are painful stories. All the commentary is painful. It's just. It's like this that every time I say it's like this and I do this in my mind I'm saying thank you Ajahn Sumedho because the time that I sat with Ajahn Sumedho who's my age a little older um, and retired now from teaching used to teach that that in a most casual way he would talk to people and then he'd say you know when things get difficult in my order and the monks aren't so easy with each other and the giving me a bad time and I feel bad because I can't work it out with them and I think 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 and then I think to myself it's like this and then I'm better with it it's just Matthew said let it go letting go not having to have it your way not doing it your way people don't have to agree with me so another one of those great lines from Shanti Deva. what if people don't want to do it your way or they They uh, say something bad about, they impugn your good name. He said, should you get angry? He said, no, don't get angry. He said, first of all, think to yourself, is it true? If it's true, fix yourself up. If it's not true, what's the problem. (laughs) But clearly, not err. That's that growling mind, which is the antithesis of the mind that's relaxed and says, you know, it's like this. And here I am, and life is short, and let me not miss this day. The third foundation of mindfulness is awareness of the presence or absence of wholesome states in the mind. Often people on retreats say, you know, I I was sleepy, I was irritable, I was annoyed, I didn't like the lunch, the Dharma talk was boring, this was da-da-da, and I was so angry, and then I was angry at myself for thinking it because this is a wonderful place and I never have any more time. People rarely come into interviews, unless we remind them to do it, and say, you know, I had a cup of tea this morning that was great. I just felt so good, that tea was so delicious. How many people had a glass of delicious tea here while they were here? Did you think to yourself while you were drinking it, wow, this is great, I feel good. Did you do that? That's wonderful to do that, because then you you rehearse good feeling in your neurons. People say, well, you know, but you know, it's not important. It is important. Our neurons are like standing on their edge from living in a difficult world with an assault of media that's telling us something new every second. Come here and feel a little bit, it's like a massage for your neurons (laughs) to dwell in wholesome states. How about gratitude? And that gets us around now, because I want us to really sit a little bit. So, you did that walking meditation and you looked at people. How was it? (laughs) We have a microphone. You don't even need a microphone. How was it? It was something. There you go. A lot more smiles. Did you enjoy it? Yes. Was it pleasant or unpleasant? It was very pleasant. It was pleasant, okay. What else?
3: I noticed
2: at first it was more mechanical, like I wish you happiness. I wish you happiness. I could was, I, I actually, wasn't relating to the person. And then there was a moment where I just started to
1: actually envision that person experiencing those things. And then I had
3: a much more open feeling
0: Wendy right Wendy thank you very much because I think when we discover that what a surprise that I'm wishing a person and you know hoping they feel pleasant but oh I feel pleasant thinking that they're pleasant that actually it's a circle that happens and and they don't even have to tell you thank you very much you know that was Mm -hmm. what else Actually, Karen, I'm very glad that you point out the the phrase, I wasn't ready to look them in the face, which is really very touching to me always. I find that doing this together with people is a very intimate thing. You know, when I suddenly talk to them, I feel like I know them already a little bit before I talk to them. And, you know, I I don't want to mess it up by talking to them in a certain way. Don't you think that? nice it's all cleared off now (laughs) when I go home from retreat practice in normal conversation with the people that I live with that person says something and then I I'm getting ready to answer and I always have a moment more space in there to think what's motivating this answer is it a plain answer Has it got a little bit of something else in it And I'm really, really clean in my communication for a while. (laughs) And then in the rush of life, I might not be. That's why, actually I think it's important to have practice built into every day. I really notice how carefully and slowly you articulate your dharma. I feel like I, I feel like you're at 78 RPM and I'm like 45 or something. (laughs) But we have different styles. I am not suffering from it, are you? Okay. <laughs> it be a bad thing if you said yes.
3: <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs>
2: I, was, I was just putting this on in case. In case. <laughs>
0: Well, in a, in a minute. Oh, I have to say that. What did you say? The fourth foundation of mindfulness, just oh. so that I can take a rest and you can use your voice a little bit.
2: Um, I really better know the answer to that. <laughs> that teacher doesn't know the fourth. I actually don't fully understand the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Um, um, there are different. You're gonna have to jump back in Sylvia. Uh, there are different ways of of understanding it as a kind of um, categories of experience or it actually some some uh, scholars feel like it's it's this um, different things got glued together perhaps in the the kind of course of history of it being compiled and so um, Yeah, there there are a number. As far as like where to actually place attention, the first three foundations are very clear. You can know like exactly where in sensory space you're being asked to direct your attention. Whereas there's more kind of vagueness in the the fourth foundation around uh, factors of enlightenment and skandhas and yeah.
0: You're absolutely right. I'm sorry I did that. I'm not sorry because you did you did the perfect answer to okay, it. It's good. it's a it's a, it's an extra. They didn't know what to do with it. Uh, I'm sure, I don't know, but I think because the first three you just said they are sensory things and they're things you can keep track of your body and your um of um, the the um experience of uh, pleasant, unpleasant and neutral also. And the mind, there's nothing but the body and the mind. And There's some people who like to say there's only the mind, but this is definitely, this is something. You know, it's things like for teaching purposes, the fourth foundation is you say, ah, I really got it. Everything arises and passes away. That's how I think about it the most. It's a compendium of what you'll know if you do all the other stuff. Everything arises and passes away. Ah, it's painful to hold on to something. If you let it go, say it's the way, it's like this, then you feel better. Um, it's really, uh, um, from, a, from a point of view, of a tradition that was passed down as an oral tradition for 300 years, 200 or 300 years, before anybody wrote down anything. If you think about kids playing... Um, telephone at a birthday party and there's 10 and they whisper in the ear and the first person says cupcake and the last one says toothbrush so it doesn't come out exactly the same as they pass it voice to voice so you're right it's what every other monk and, and translator put in in between but anyway what I wanted to say and I think you tell me what you think of this as a teaching technique I wanted to say that it's the same as if you say that mindfulness is the way to wake up to the, the inherent suffering condition of being a human being and to awaken the, basically the compassion that's also inherently part of it. And they can be mindful of, um, and that we can practice that mindfulness as a remedial thing in the body in the, in the body, with the mind, and in the uh, awareness in both body and mind, and I'm not so sure they're separate, of its pleasant and unpleasant and how we respond to it. That's kind of, I see how I see it scientifically, mm-hmm. really. Does that make sense to you?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. And the one thing that's coming up for me is that... Um, I I think the, the path of wisdom tends to generate um ethical wholesomeness and love, but it doesn't seem to inevitably lead so. And so there there are a kind of problem cases where uh and and I can say like honestly, in my, my coming of age in the Dharma, there have been phases of real um kind of disillusionment and heartbreak as I see the ways that insight and samadhi, the unification of mind, can actually split off from uh, just a basic sense of decency. And so we have, you know, um, uh, quite sadly, like within the the Buddhist uh, scene and others, you know, genuine deep spiritual traditions, a history of of predatory behavior and um, exploitation of people, their money, their bodies, their autonomy, and you know that that's been a, like a, actually a deep coming to terms for for me because what I saw and it wasn't I was not directly uh, in, like uh, impacted by this but just one generation kind of removed um, in seeing teachers people I've sat with who um, um, were like, unquestionably understood something, or they they had certain capacities of mind that we can, like, readily appreciate. But uh, somehow we're, like, living um, in ways that sometimes causing subtle and sometimes egregious levels of harm. And for me, the, the kind of deep shake-up was that the harm that they caused cast a shadow over the wisdom that I saw in them. And it made me actually ask the question, what is that wisdom worth if it does not guarantee a certain level of ethical responsibility? Is that the enlightenment I want? And if it not, in what ways is what else actually needs to be added to the to the soup in order for there to be a kind of mature, integrated uh, awakening, uh, a kind of spiritual maturity? And uh, I, I feel like I'm I'm still. Asking those kinds of questions, and one of the effects that, it's, that um, those experience have had on me is that um, I'm I'm, uh, I'm most interested in the insight that catalyzes love. And if it's not leading, if if this kind of capacity of the mind, and there are many like beautiful capacities of the mind, things that we maybe never even imagine w- ways of abiding. Um, but if that does not actually lead us in a, wh- a wholesome direction towards just ordinary. Goodness, ordinary, non-harming. If it doesn't lead us in that way, it's kind of bracketed for me. Yeah, and um, so I think it actually touches on very deep questions of like, what is enlightenment? What is spiritual maturity? What does it mean to live uh, a life where the Dharma is integrated at depth? but also at breadth, yeah? We kind of fetishize the depth, Nibbana, uh, you know, and, and then we make actually the map of enlightenment that we have highlights a certain kind of progression of insights that I'm in no way dismissive of, but it's a little, it's a way of privileging depth over breadth. And so enlightenment is a question of how high can we go. But for me, spiritual maturity is how low might we sink. Yeah? And I want to like raise the depth. How low I might go, that's, that's as important as how high I go, too.
0: No, really, thank you, Karen. You know, you just so articulated such a a first of all contemporary um, conversation in Buddhist circles, and also one that I share and have thought about over all the years. That it's possible to actually have profound understanding about emptiness and about and not a profoundly responsive heart. I have a theory. One theory. There's lots of theories, and I'm not really a sociologist enough to know. One of my theories is the uh, the dharma that came to the United States in the last 50 years came primarily through a few teachers in this tradition, in the Theravada tradition. Came through lay teachers: Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg. Uh, Stephen Batchelor, a number of uh, teachers who uh, really are a generation post the Second World War, uh, a generation of people who found that their um, spiritual experience growing up in the 50s had been not so fulfilling in terms of connecting them with their heart uh, and were looking for a tradition that uh, also lifted them out of the trauma of being the first generation of people who actually knew that there's nuclear energy in the world and the atrocities of the Second World War and the potential might of, of, of countries that are more involved at the time in a Cold War and the specter of nuclear winter. And I think they were people who were looking for some way to have peace in their mind and weren't finding it in the religions of their growing up. Not because it wasn't there to find, actually, but because it hadn't been presented to them. It had been presented more as uh, um, an enclave to belong to and defend and a cosmology to defend one that they could not feel comfortable in, and one without tools for living in a modern world. And they found themselves actually not looking for a spiritual tradition, but looking to serve a a world that had been so battered. And uh, in large measure, all of them, not Sharon, but the other two went to Asia because they were in the Peace Corps. And they went to serve in the Peace Corps and met these kinds of ideas. And they brought them back. And because it was the 70s and the 80s, I think they brought it back teaching the particular segment of Dharma that has to do with privileging inner um, experience and the paths to greater and greater altered states of consciousness. It, It superimposed on the fact that the 60s and the 70s and to some degree the 80s was still characterized by the use of chemicals to produce internal states. One of the great leaders, spokespeople, or in some ways quite a wonderful teacher, uh, Richard Alpert, now generally known as Ram Das, said, you can only take drugs and stay high for a certain amount of time. You can't t- t- keep taking drugs forever, so we learned to meditate. And people made the mental Connection that I, I don't have to. I can't feel drug, good from drugs forever. I'll feel good from meditating forever. So going into it, it was not to become purified in their heart or really look at their moral f- structure. Although all of those people have fine ethics, but really as a way to really uh, have extraordinary experience and not be so impacted by the direness of now 20th century uh, a world. And what they primarily left out of, of the Dharma was the foundation of, of Sila, the foundation of cultivating an awareness of other people in the world. I told you the mythical foundation of Sila with parrots rescuing everyone from forests and other kinds of pre-Buddha beings really being at the at really available to other people to serve but it was not a strong point in the early Dharma world. What people um, admired were people with fantastic uh, meditation abilities and not so much their behavior, Uh, not so much the behavior of people, not so much a dedication to ethics, which I'm happy to say is now coming back into the Dharma. Do you see that? Mm -hmm. I think so. That we are now talking about paramis and ethics and really talking about when your eyes are open, not only do you see uh, impermanence and suffering and causality, but when your eyes are really open, you see that every day this world is getting polluted Every day, masses, huge pieces of the population of the world are being affected by the greed and aversion of many other people whose blindness is still there. I remember people saying years ago at uh, Dharma discussions, saying, I want to know about what my teacher's realization is, not whether or not they recycle. And that's so, and seriously, somebody said a long time ago. And I remember at the time thinking to myself, I actually want to know whether they recycle. <laughs> that, 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 that makes a lot, yeah, I want to know whether their understanding of interdependence includes having a planet and includes using the resources of the planet and include not just feeling comfortable in our own minds, but being able to make it a, a world where people can live together in that way of not being afraid that I mean it about that uh, the, uh, the, the, what Sam said in that I wanted um, everybody to feel safe and well loved that I think that that's the point of practice to discover it's possible, so never mind you, know, you can't say just let the world do whatever it'll do. I'll just sit here and feel peaceful. but I, yeah, I think the more. Didn't I, I say last night about that meeting, where how many people voted? How many, how many people voted, and how many people, how many people went out and walked on January twentieth? How many people sit? There's a sitting group in the um, Capitol building. Do you know that? There's a sitting every Monday in the in the congressional office building. There's a sitting group that was put together by um, Tim Ryan who wrote a book called, um,
2: what's his book? It's called
0: Mindful Nation. Nation. That really, to begin to say the point of this is not so we'll all feel out of this world, it's that we'll all behave ourselves and take care of each other, really, I think. What do you think? (laughs) It's a little bit too wound up. We should sit a little bit. No, no, no! Really, we're answering the questions that have been in the bowl. Anyway, we have twenty-five minutes before we eat lunch. I would like to. You want to lead this, or you want me to lead it? Yeah. If you went on a loving-kindness retreat for one week. For two months, let's start there. If you went on a loving-kindness retreat for two months, you'd spend a week really feeling grounded in the wish for yourself to feel at ease. Keeping in mind, it's not privileging yourself over the whole world, it's just by making it easy. Here I am, and I can feel this body in order not to get to be nicer to myself necessarily, but to soothe my own neurons, really make sure that my own systems for feeling at ease are strengthened. My neurons get to feel the capacity to feel ease and well-being and gratitude from which comes generosity. I might do that for a week, then I might think about my teacher for a week, exclusively doing a particular practice, which I'll now do with you. And then I'd spend a week thinking about my best beloved and another week on this and another week on that. And then by and by, I'd be asked to think about people I don't know, maybe on the retreat, people who are not, people I know anything about. And eventually to bring to mind are all the beings in the whole world. And among them beings that, the few particular beings that I have not yet learned how to hold in my heart with ease. You'll notice I did, did not say that I have not yet been able to bless and wish well. It's not about being able to bless and wish well everyone. It's about being able to hold them in my mind and my heart with ease without upsetting my ability to wish well wholeheartedly. (coughs) And if I were doing that for two months, I'd do it that way. In one month, I'd do it twice as, half as much time. And three days, I would do it half as much time. And in one day, I would do it more concisely. And now we'll do it in 30 minutes. because it's important to know that all of the instructions wish to them, wish to those, these people, those people, these people, those people. It's not the Buddha's instructions. It's a much more recent, not contemporary, but much more recent than the Buddha. What the Buddha says is wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, omitting none. It comes from an understanding, I'm sure, that all beings are vulnerable to suffering. It comes out of a genuine compassion for all beings. So first we'll just sit quietly Let your shoulders relax, let your body relax. Let breath come in and out of your body just as it does. Relax your face by smiling. Feel your breath. Sometimes if you sit very, very still, you can feel your heartbeat. Not all the time, but when you can, it's very pleasant. We'll do a practice of using words as blessings as a way of developing a relaxed and concentrated and focused mind. So let's practice a little bit by starting with the word safe. Think to yourself safe. Invoking it as a feeling in your mind that you have known and feeling it in your body. It's not like thinking about it. Just like ringing a bell of realization in your body, safe. In this community, in this room, in this moment, in this mind, in this body, safe. Always think of these kinds of invocations as being something like calling down into a well and having the well echo back. Call down into my body safe and have it echo back safe. Try this word, try joy. try saying joy to your body and mind and have it echo back joy. You don't need to do anything. Just wait. Just say joy. May I have joy. strength or strong. May I be strong. May I feel strong. May I feel ease. If you want, you can say just the word in your mind or you can say the sentence in your mind May I feel safe. May I feel joy. May I feel strong. May I live with ease. One more time, may I feel safe. May I feel joy, may I feel strong, may I live with ease. use those same words, thinking about someone who's absolutely dear to us, whose well-being brings joy into our mind. Sometimes kin, mother, father, sisters, brothers, children, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, teachers, someone who, when you think about them, your heart leaps up. And on your own, wish for that person safety and joy and strength and ease. If you want to say whole sentences, may you be, you can do it. May you feel. Or if you just want to say the word and be thinking of them in your mind, say the word deliberately as if it could go out from your heart and into them. think about someone that you would recognize but that you don't have a very close and intimate relationship with. Maybe someone you work with, someone that you don't feel one way or the other way about, generally at ease with. I rotate between the postmaster and my little town the post office and the person who cuts my hair or the dentist that I've been seeing for lots of years. I don't think about them except when I'm at the dentist or the post office. But I'd recognize them if I met them in the supermarket. Someone that's a familiar stranger. And see with the same dedication and the same ardor, if you can wish for them without even knowing their whole story. May you feel safe. May you feel joy. May you feel strength. May you live with ease. I'm often surprised with how much more warmly I feel about them than even when I see them, when I just recall that I know who they are and what they do in the world. Maybe one more time with these people, safe and joy and strong and ease And then maybe all the people in this room, some of whom you maybe know quite well, some of whom maybe you haven't met at all yet, some of them dear to you maybe, maybe most of them familiar strangers. If it works, you might want to say each of those blessings on a heartbeat or on a breath. I always find that if I'm uh, imagining that uh, my uh, body can radiate out good wishes to everyone in the room, could certainly radiate the same good wishes all over the world. It doesn't go on a phone line or anything. It's just intention. So I imagine that in all the directions, out from me, out from you, out from any other person, anywhere in the world who is wishing well at this moment to all the inhabitants of the earth. Wishing for all the inhabitants of the earth. May they feel safe. and strong, and live with ease. And really, since the principal um, aim of this kind of practice is to cultivate one's own heart as a sanctuary, a place that's free of enmity. In those moments that we are wishing well over the whole entire world, out of compassionate awareness that everyone suffers and compassionate hope that everyone thrive and succeed. Can wish for the whole world. And I think about each of us being that kind of beacon of universal well-wishing The Buddha's teaching that we often abbreviate as the Metta Sutta is also called the Buddha's teaching on impartial goodwill, or impartial kindness. Here we are all radiating kindness over the entire world. Let's just sit and do that for a few minutes. Keeping in mind that the principal beneficiary of your wishing well to the whole entire world is your own heart, which is purified of enmity in all of its forms. And really is the most immediate guarantor of your being able to feel safe and joyful and strong. So here's another teaching moment in the lunchtime. Prepared with your four blessing phrases. May you feel safe. May you feel joy. May you feel strong. May you live with ease. You could be standing in the line and saying those phrases to yourself, to anybody else that's on the line. Maybe you want to say it to the cooks whose creations you haven't even seen yet in advance, thanking them for it. What it does among others, first of all, it's obviously a nice thing to do and it sets up a nice feeling in the mind. It's also an antidote to feeling the line is not going fast enough, they're not moving along. It's an antidote to afflictive feelings. You can't be wishing a blessing and feel afflicted at the same time by anything. You really can't. If you find out it's not the lunch you really wanted, say, well, may I feel safe, may I feel joy. May the cooks who made this feel joy and happy and proud that the mind in forward motion, These little golf carts that we drive around, they're very simple to drive. They have only two moves. They can only go forward and back, and they can't go forward and back at the same time. If you are in forward motion, like a blessing which leans forward, you can't be going back. So, have a good lunch.